Hello, everybody. You're listening to Magnify with Justin Begley, a podcast dedicated to lifting up the name of Jesus in our culture and our lives. Well, hello again, friends. My name is Justin Begley, and I am the host of Magnify. I don't know about you, but these past couple weeks, particularly this past week, have been absolutely exhausting. With everything that's going on with the election and accusations of voter fraud and recounts and craziness in the media and on Twitter, everything just is absolutely exhausting. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, which can be scary for, for a lot of people. But I just thank God that no matter the uncertainty, no matter what we face, or no matter what the uncertainty we might find ourselves in, we know that we have a God who cares for us, who is leading us towards something bigger, the fulfillment of his kingdom, and who gives us a hope by giving us the gift of eternity with him. This kind of gets a little bit at what we talked about last week with the election. See, our hope is not in a political candidate or a party or even our country, though we should absolutely love our country, be patriotic, uh, be a part of a political party, and we can even uh, really like certain political candidates. But no, our hope is in eternity. It is a t- an eternal type of hope, a hope that cannot be broken because we have a sovereign God whose plan cannot be undermined or thwarted. You see, we have a God, the creator of the universe, the master of all things, the king of the world that loves us and is going to dwell with us in eternity. That is what our hope is, that we will one day meet our maker and be in his joyful, loving presence forever. Well, if you haven't guessed yet, hope is going to be the topic of conversation today. But instead of focusing on the hope that we have in particular, uh, which I've just briefly discussed and um, have covered in previous episodes... Today, we're going to talk about the biblical mandate for us as Christians to share that hope with others and how we might actually go about doing that. So if you've been listening to this podcast for, for a while, you know, we're on episode nine now, so, it, so it's been going for a little bit, you, you know that my goal is to first and foremost share the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and this is what the aim of evangelism is. You also may know that we take the Word of God very, very seriously on this podcast, kind of mining through it so that we can get a deep and comprehensive understanding of what we think God is trying to communicate to us. And sometimes in order to gain a deeper deeper understanding, we look to resources that God has provided us, such as the discipline of philosophy and science, subjects that God has actually developed and that help us to further understand who he is, and and how he reveals himself to us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible, um, you see, is the primary. It's the primary way uh, through which God reveals himself to us, but it's not the only way. You see, theologians differentiate between two primary modes through which God reveals himself to us. There is what is called special revelation, which has to do with God's revelation to us kind of more directly um, through things like scriptures and the incarnation or the life of Jesus. And we see support for special revelation in verses like 1 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is God-breathed, or in other words, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Wayne Grudem, author of the famous textbook Systemic Theology and a professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary, says, All the words in the Bible are God's words. 
Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey them is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. So it's critically important to take God's special revelation, his word, seriously as the primary source of wisdom and knowledge of God. But also look to John uh, 1, 14-18, where we see God's special revelation through the person of Jesus. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and, ex- and exclaiming, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So it's clear that God specially reveals himself through the incarnation of Jesus based on this this verse from John 1. Now, as I mentioned, there's also what's called general revelation, which basically is God revealing himself through more natural means, such as his creation or science or philosophy or logic or reasoning or, or whatever else, etc. Paul says in Romans 1.20, he says, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So, he, so Paul is saying uh, that God clearly reveals himself through his creation. So people do not have any excuse not to believe in him because his creation is so incredible and so sophisticated and so unimaginably complex that they have no excuse not to believe that God is the creator of the universe. We also see this in Psalm 19, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day it speaks out, night after night it reveals his greatness. So through general revelation, God reveals himself to everyone across uh, the entire globe. And God also writes uh, his existence into our consciousness and his law into our hearts. So listen to what it says in Romans 2, 14 and 16 to kind of back up this claim. Paul says, So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. And finally, as I mentioned, uh, God, who is the creator of logic and reasoning, allows himself to be revealed that way as well. So listen to what uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 12 to 15. Paul says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. So God grants us wisdom and understanding through the mechanism and his, uh, his creation of logic and reasoning, which is how we get biblical philosophy. So 
what's the point I'm, I'm trying to make here? Why did I go off on this tangent about divine revelation and, and what does it have to do with anything regarding sharing the hope that we have with other people? So I did this because I want you to understand kind of where I'm going in this episode in terms of apologetics. I want to introduce you all to apologetics. Now, we've discussed apologetics a couple of different times in previous episodes, especially in episode 7, which you can go back to and listen to on Spotify. It's called The Truth, where we talk about how we know that Jesus Christ is the only true way to God. So that's what we talk about in episode 7. And that was kind of our introduction to apologetics. But here today, I actually want to dial in more specifically on what apologetics actually is and how we can effectively use it to evangelize and share the hope that we have with others. And this is where the divine revelation comes in because apologetics is deeply rooted in leveraging both special and general revelation to share the gospel and help give a defense for our faith. It hinges on special revelation because without it, we'd have nothing to share. And it utilizes tools from general, general revelation, such as logic and reasoning. And putting this all together, uh, we can come up with a rather strong method to communicate our hope to other people, especially those that would consider themselves more skeptic. So let's quickly define apologetics. Apologetics is a branch of Christian theology that provides reasoned arguments to give a defense for the Christian faith uh, against any objections. And so the study of apologetics is essential, I believe, to all Christians, all those that would consider them believe, consider themselves to be believers. We have a, a lot of opposition in this world from, unbe- from unbelievers who try to undermine our faith with arguments from science and philosophy and other uh, religions and worldviews. But what apologetics aims to do is provide a counter to these objections. And if you study apologetics, I think that you will find that no objections exist that can undermine or counter the truth of Jesus Christ. Because really, in reality, in the last 2,000 years, none ever have. Though skeptics um, will toss clever arguments against the Christian faith, they are rarely ever well thought out or even well reasoned. If you spend any time reading books on apologetics or any time on YouTube watching debates among famous atheistic skeptics like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens against any of the great apologists like Ravi Zacharias and John Lennox and William Lane Craig, or you can name a ton of others as well, you will quickly see what I'm talking about. When you apply the tests of truth to Christianity, you will never see anything that refutes it in a coherent way. So why apologetics? Why do we have to give a a defense for the Christian faith? First off, the Bible actually commands it. So look at 1 Peter 3.15, kind of the seminal verse for Christian apologetics. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You see, Peter is saying that we need to worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ and be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have. That word, answer or defense, in the verse that I just read to you, is the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our word for apologetics from. And so, Again, apologetics is giving a defense for the faith, and according to 1 Peter 3, we all have to do this. 
And this leads to the second answer uh, to our why apologetics question. It actually helps us be more effective in evangelism. Just to quickly remind you, we do have a biblical mandate to share the gospel with unbelievers as well. And that's why Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's Jesus' great commission from Matthew 28. So we have the obligation to share the hope that we have with all people, but what if they don't believe us? This is where apologetics comes in. So what if they're skeptic and just don't believe in God? Or what if they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Maybe you're sharing the gospel with an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever other worldview the person has. So whatever that worldview that person has that you're sharing Jesus with, it helps to understand what they truly believe and how to respond to what they were, what they believe, which is why the study of worldviews and philosophy and apologetics can be so beneficial to us in our personal ministries. Some of you may have read Paul's debates and his preaching with the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17. If you remember, Paul was there waiting for Silas and Timothy to meet him there in Athens. And when he's there, he's kind of watching the Athenians move about, and he's seeing a lot of idolatry, and he's seeing a lot of them worshiping these false gods. And so he was convicted by the Holy Spirit to just um, get up and start preaching Jesus. And so let's take a look at how Paul applied apologetics to his ministry here in Athens. Looking at Acts 17, starting in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's talking about Timothy and Silas, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Quick side note on what we just read. Do we know anyone like this that goes about talking about the newest and latest ideas? Anyone that, that follows these latest ideas? I can certainly think of a few. How, how about literally all of Western society, for instance, <laughs> including our academics and our media, talking about, oh, it's, you know, let's talk about the latest political trend. Let's talk about the latest philosophical paper that just came out or whatever the latest politician just said or this new economic idea or whatever. Con it's constant in our, in our culture. And so that's why, and you'll see this as we, as we keep talking about this, it is so important to be ready and able to give a defense for the Christian faith. So, picking back up in verse 22, I'm going to read until verse 34. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked about and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus there. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So that, that concludes that portion of Acts. So what are we seeing Paul do here in his conversation with the Athenians? Well, first, um, I think it's important to point out that we see that Paul is in Athens waiting for his team, Silas and Timothy, to arrive so that they can get to work kind of uh, in evangelizing and building up the body of Christ. But while he's sitting there waiting for them, he becomes distraught by the fact that so many around him in Athens were worshiping these false gods, including Jewish people and what Luke, the author of Acts, calls God-fearing Greeks. So moved by the Holy Spirit, Paul goes out and confronts all this, and he wanted to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people. And this is what, what God will do. What, what, what he does in our lives is that he will send the Holy Spirit to prompt us to share the gospel with people, and, and we need to actually uh, submit to that. We have to allow God's mission and his sovereignty to work through us in that. The second thing we see in this chapter of Acts is that even those who seem like they will not believe the gospel might just be the ones to respond most excitedly. You see, when Paul was preaching the resurrection, uh, he's approached by these Athenian philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who wanted to engage with him in discussing these ideas. So they brought him to the Areopagus, or in other words, the high court of Athens, and, and they ask him to tell them more about this Jesus. So Paul actually begins sharing the gospel and starts by appealing to their own beliefs. So he's recognizing that these people are in pursuit of the truth, but Paul's also explaining that they are looking in the wrong place because they keep attaching themselves to these fad ideas, to these popularized temporary ideas. So he even appeals to the common writings of Greek poets when he's saying, as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. So this is a tactic that Paul is using is he's using an appeal tactic, but you know, kind of lending some credibility to what they believe, but inserting what is actually true. So Paul is appealing to what they currently believe to build some level of commonality from which to move forward with the distinctiveness and the truth of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it can be helpful to gain an understanding of different worldviews so that you can more properly respond to skeptics. 
You see, Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee, educated in Jewish law, a Roman citizen, and was well-versed in Greek philosophy, kind of trained in it. So he was able to adequately communicate with the Athenians here because he got on their level and he was educated similarly to them. His connecting with the people and his apologetic was so effective then that the text actually says that he converted Dionysius, a member of the Athenian high court, which if you don't understand the context of the Areopagus, that means that Dionysius would no longer be allowed on the council, thus giving up his position of power in the Athenian high courts in order to follow Christ. Uh, what do we do if we don't have a background in a particular worldview of a person we're evangelizing. What, what do we do in that scenario? See, Paul was prepared to interact with the Athenians because he had the background. But what if we don't? Well, the, honestly, the answer, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's just ask questions. Ask questions that get at the core of what people believe. And then follow up and say, well, why do you believe that? Or how did you conclude that? How did you come to that conclusion? And then, once you kind of hear them out from that, you can then respond with, a, with, with the biblical worldview. A third thing that we see here in Acts 17, and, and I briefly mentioned this a second ago, is that Paul is directly pointing out the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of Christ. You see, the text says that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, and that this is important. Um, and the philosophers said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. In other words, they had never heard of such a thing as, such a thing as God, the most powerful being in the cosmos, actually coming down to earth, humbling himself as a person, as a servant, and subjecting himself to suffering and death on a cross. And they certainly had never heard uh, such a thing as a person resurrecting. This was a crazy idea to them. So people like to say that, and you may, you may hear this, people like to say often that uh, all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. I know, you know when I was a, a freshman in high school, I went to a public school, and we had to take a class on kind of global studies, ancient history, and it included a unit on world religion. And I remember my teacher at the time, who was not a Christian, my teacher at the time used to say, oh, well, all religions are basically the same. They're not really that different. You know, there's like pretty much all lead to the same place for a lot of people. And I just remember sitting there because I, 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 when I was a freshman in high school, I wasn't really a strong faith Christian. So I kind of accepted what she said. But I remember sitting there and like, is that really true? Or are all religions basically the same? If so, why is there such division amongst, amongst different religions? Why is why even bother with the different religions at the, that point if they are basically the same thing? And so as I grew up and as I learned, I realized that this statement that all religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different is just not true. It's, it's blatantly false, actually. In, in reality, all religions are actually fundamentally different and only superficially similar. And this is especially the case with the Christian worldview. No other religion, and I, I stress you to find one, I mean, I, I bet you that you cannot find a single other religion that is like the Christian worldview. No other religion claims that we can have a personal relationship with God. 
To the Hindu and the Buddhist, this doesn't even make any sense. To the Muslim, it's just blasphemous. To the pantheist, everything is God, so there's no relationship whatsoever. And to the atheist, what does it matter? Because God doesn't exist. In addition to the uniqueness of that relationship that we can have that only the Christian worldview claims is possible, consider that the unique claim that God actually came down, made himself flesh, became a person, to, and lived with us. And more than that, he came for one purpose, to suffer and to die, so that he could provide a way of salvation for humanity. No other worldview claims that. Not one. All worldviews are fundamentally different, especially the Christian worldview, and superficially similar. That's really important to keep in mind, especially when you're going out and evangelizing people or practicing apologetics. I think that we can find inspiration and encouragement in this passage of Paul sharing the good news with the Athenians. He's prompted by the Holy Spirit. He willingly responded to the Holy Spirit, and then he went and actually converted even some of the greatest skeptics, including Dionysius, because he was prepared to give an answer to the people that asked him to give a reason for the hope that he had. We might find ourselves in a similar position as Paul, especially if you live in the West. InterVarsity Press wrote a commentary on Paul's witness to the Athenians, and it says, The prevailing philosophies of the West post-Christian era, secular humanism-specific empiricism, and the New Age pantheistic type of postmodernism are remarkably similar to the Epicureanism and the Stoicism Paul encountered at Athens. Paul's speech becomes a model for how to witness to the educated post-Christian mind, even as it spoke to Theophilus and his fellow seekers with their first-century pre-Christian minds, proclaiming the gospel with integrity. So... That being said, if we do find ourselves in a position where we're confronted with a skeptic or evangelizing to a person of a different faith, we can use Paul's witness here to the Athenians in Acts 17 as a model for sharing the hope that we have and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Before we conclude uh, this episode, because I know we're going uh, long a little bit, I do want to quickly go back to 1 Peter 3.15. Remember what it says. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I want to focus on the last sentence there, which, if you didn't guess, I emphasized it very particularly. Do this with gentleness and respect. When you're giving an apologetic, when you're giving a defense for the, fa- for the faith, when you're evangelizing, it's important to understand that we are not using logic and reasoning to win a debate. We're not trying to be- best somebody in an argument. We're not trying to win anything. We're using what we know from special and general revelation to share the hope we have in Jesus, not win an argument. And this can be certainly tempting. I mean, I I found myself in this position many times when someone is really hostile towards your faith and you just want to respond back with the same level of hostility. But here's the deal. And this is really something that is important to uh, to keep in mind and to remember, especially if you find yourself in this scenario, no one ever left an argument and decided to follow Jesus after it. That just doesn't happen. I was once sharing the gospel with a college student that I'm close with, someone who is 
committed to the worldview of naturalism, or in other words, he's basically an atheist, scientific materialist type type deal. And he started just laying into the Christian faith with such hostility. And at first, I restrained myself because I knew that his worldview didn't stand the test of logic. I knew that I, I needed to be gentle and respectful. But after a while, I just completely lost that restraint. The conversation became very heated as we both uh, became increasingly frustrated. And it became really more of a debate than a conversation. What started the conversation quickly evolved into a um, near yelling argument. And I, I really regretted my behavior during this conversation so much so that I went, I actually went to him and apologized to him and hoped that he would forgive me for that. You see, you have to understand that when you're having uh, a conversation, when you're conversing with skeptics, they may show a lot of hostility to what you believe. And they may even be rude and derogatory and condescending. But remember, they aren't Christ followers, so we shouldn't expect them to act the way that we are called to act. We have to be gentle and respectful. We need to put Christ on display because as Jesus says, Take my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If we are truly followers of Christ, if we really are what we claim to be, God will grant us that gentleness. This is what Paul is talking about when he writes about the fruits of the Spirit in, in, in Galatians 5. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Our goal in apologetics is to first and foremost present Christ. And we can do this with gentleness and respect, which comes directly from the work that Christ did for us on the cross. Hence why John says in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. While he was still alive, the great apologist Ravi Zacharias would often say, the greatest apologetic is love because love is the supreme ethic. Ravi says that love is the essential component in reaching the whole person in a fragmented world. The need is vast, but it is also imperative that we be willing to follow the example of Jesus and meet the need. If the love of Christ is as transforming as we claim it to be, then unbelievers will expect us to live as if we've been transformed, which means that we love others because Christ first loved us. I want to end with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Polish-German pastor and theologian during World War II. Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Nazis for his dissidents and was sent to a concentration camp called Flosenberg, in, which is, was located in Germany, where he was actually uh, later killed. And he wrote a book in 1937 called The Cost of Discipleship prior to being sent to the concentration camp, but while living in Nazi Germany. In the book, Bonhoeffer detailed the, the demands of a sacrifice and biblical ethics that uh, should be evident in the life of a Christian. And the book spells out what Bonhoeffer believes it truly means to follow Christ. In the book, he says this, and, and keep in mind, he was living in Nazi Germany and yet still believed what he wrote to be true uh, here. And so Bonhoeffer says, Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except that the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need of love. 
but his enmity political or religious. He has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. In such love, there is not inner discord between the private person and official capacity. In both, we are disciples of Christ, or we're not Christians at all. So no matter your circumstance, no matter the hostility you face, no matter the arguments you get against your faith, present Christ. Give a reason for the hope that you have, and do so with the same love that Christ showed you on the cross. God bless.